This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come, find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as usual by my partner in banter and dear friend, Dan Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. What's up, Dan? Good to be here, Leslie. And uh, normally we record these podcasts on uh, Thursday, but today, as uh, Rebecca Black said, oh, it's Friday. Oh, good grief. Dan, winter is almost upon us as this week, TV reporters and critics, much like yourself, descended upon New York for the final season premiere of HBO's Game of Thrones. Elsewhere, Mike Schur and Sean Hayes are teaming for a Netflix comedy. John Cho is going to star in Netflix's Cowboy Bebop live action series. Andre Holland set as the lead in The Eddie from La La Land's Damien Chazelle. The Walking Dead and This Is Us ended their seasons and one of my favorites, FXX comedy You're the Worst absolutely crushed the landing with a fantastic series finale. But I'm no critic, Dan. That's for you to say. Meanwhile, the standoff over packaging fees between the Writers Guild and the Association of Talent Agents is heading into D-Day on April 6th with no sign of a deal. It feels like the town is holding its collective breath, waiting to see what happens. And I personally am doing the same. It's a terrifying proposal to see the town's top agents be fired by their clients by it would just be in the middle of staffing season it's I, i'm got my fingers crossed that there's some last minute deal but we'll find out on sunday oh and by the way i kind of forgot to mention but maybe i didn't only on twitter but uh dan your red Sox have the worst record in baseball there my friend what was that let's say I, I can't hear you over uh, polishing my uh, my 2018 world series trophy i uh, sorry you say something all right all right <laughs> Fair. Fine. Fine. This is what I get for scripting my jokes. You come up with better comebacks. That's fine. Well, with so much going on across the TV landscape, Dan and I are here on the podcast to go beyond the top headlines of the week and offer a deep dive into the latest news. With all that out of the way, let's get right into it. Number one. Leading off this week, Dan, you are just back from a whirlwind trip to New York where you had the hottest ticket in town, an invite to the final season premiere of Game of Thrones. It was a lavish event at the famed Radio City Music Hall that brought out a who's who of celebrity fans, current and former Game of Thrones cast members, and more who all saw the first of the six remaining episodes of HBO's fantasy drama. While formal reviews are, of course, embargoed until after the April 14th premiere, Dan, you're allowed to share some early reactions, right? What was your immediate thought? Yes, HBO has acknowledged that people are only human and that initial overall responses have not been as fiercely embargoed. But I'm certainly not going to spoil anything for the listeners. Um, I mean, I think the realistic answer is that some fans are going to be very happy with the premiere and other fans are going to be very angry about the premiere. And that is 
probably going to be the true of just about every second of this entire season because everyone has their own agendas of what they need. We'll have uh, THR's wonderful Game of Thrones expert Josh Wiggler in next week to talk a little bit about what he's looking forward to this season, but everyone is going to have a different agenda. And so, honestly, for me and my agenda, the premiere was fairly satisfying. I thought it had a lot of nice character moments and some good laughs and some good emotions. So that's that's vague and not in any way spoilery. I also did feel like it was a little play setting, and I think that play setting is what Game of Thrones premieres have traditionally done. There just might be a different rule that some people have in their minds when there are only six episodes to go if play setting is actually what they want. So, yeah, I think I think some people will be like, oh, my God, why have they not gotten the action? And other people will be like, I'm happy to be back with these characters. And I think the people who are in the I'm happy to be back with these characters camp will be very happy and other people will be disgruntled, but disgruntled in a way that isn't going to in any way impact their excitement for episode two. So I think that would be my initial reaction without spoiling anything. Woohoo! Just give me good Arya Stark moments. That's all I ask for. I can. I will spoil things by saying there are a lot of good Arya Stark moments. I am very excited. She is my favorite character on the show. I I would watch Maisie Williams react to things for fifty minutes <laughs> a week. So who else was there? Tell us a little bit about what you saw. The premiere was at Radio City Music Hall. I'd never actually been in Radio City Music Hall. I was apparently uh, not raised in a Rockettes-friendly family when I criticized my parents for never having taken me to a show in Radio City Music Hall. They said I probably would have been disgruntled and annoyed if they'd taken me to the Rockettes, and they're probably correct. So anyway, um, <laughs> it is... I mean, it's fantastic venue. Be sure to send Dan Rockettes tickets to TV's Top 5 at THR.com. Hey, when you when you said I had the hottest ticket in town, I thought you were talking about Brian Cranston and Network, which I also got a ticket for. Um, but yes, so there were a lot. I mean, basically the entire cast, everyone came out other than Lita Heedy, who apparently was under the weather and sent her tweet regrets and whatnot. But an amazing assortment of talent when they actually they all came out before the screening and they stretched from one end of the stage to the other, which was impressive. But even more impressive was when they all had to come back into the audience and each individual member of the talent was accompanied by a security person or person from the Radio City Music Hall. So it was in the dark before the credits started and like 85 people suddenly milled to get everyone into their right places, but also lots of people who are no longer with the show. So Sean Bean was there. Uh, They were showing lots of the red carpet stuff inside as people were sitting and waiting because it was, you know, scheduled for seven, naturally didn't start until 745. That's how it goes. So lots of former cast members, including Sean Bean, Charles Dance, Mark Addy, my favorite Natalie Dormer, just an amazing assortment of people. Naturally, Rose Leslie showed up because, of course, she's with Kit Harrington. It was very impressive. Then lots of HBO bigwigs and lots of people from the, the transition, as it were. So uh, Robert Greenblatt was there. Jeff Zucker was there, etc. And more importantly, HBO CEO Richard Plepler was there. I believe he has said that this is going to be his, that this was his last event. This is officially how he ended his HBO tenure. What can you say about what that was like? Did he speak at all? Did he get some shout outs from the stage? He did not uh, speak. The HBO representative executive on the stage was uh, Casey Bloys. And he gave the first introduction before kicking over to Benioff and Weiss. And uh, both Bloys and Benioff and Weiss 
gave lavish credit to Richard Pluckler, and there was applause from the crowd and all of that, but Pluckler did not go up on the stage and did not make any sort of farewell speech. Uh, but I think he felt probably like he was represented well enough from the stage. And then he was not at the party afterwards, probably because, you know, he might have felt that it was, you know, he was there to celebrate the show itself, and then the new regime, etc., was there for the other part. But on the stage, everyone was very was extraordinarily gracious in crediting him for seeing the potential of this and making sure that it stayed on task in the early development. And then everyone gave him definite credit for both greenlighting the most expensive pilot in HBO history. And, and then, then reshooting green... like 90% of that. Yes. And then greenlighting the most expensive reshoots. And, and you know, no one has ever been the least bit shy about talking about the reshooting of the pilot on this show. That's just a part of the show's lore. But it is kind of funny how prominently everyone on the stage mentioned the reshoots on the pilot. And my personal dream is that at some point, some sort of magical extended HBO sponsored Game of Thrones DVD set includes the original pilot. I have a feeling that's the kind of thing we'll that we'll never actually see, which is a little sad. I would I would like to I would love I love seeing busted pilots personally. It would be I think it would be very entertaining, illuminating, enlightening. And unfortunately, I, I think that probably nobody associated with it who wasn't associated with the ongoing show, and there was lots of recasting, and obviously Tom McCarthy, who directed it, you know, was pushed aside. I, I think a lot of people would have issues with it ever seeing the light of day. <laughs> yeah, in, in a larger sense, I mean, the cast and everyone kind of giving credit to Plepler for being patient, it, it comes at a really questionable time for HBO, which we've talked about in, in the past here, of course. With the end of Game of Thrones in sight, the conversation is now shifting to its future and new owner, AT&T's plans for the cable network. And look, AT&T paid $85 billion for Time Warner assets. HBO is the crown jewel there. And, you know, look, Plepler left after Warner Media was merged and, and former NBC chairman Bob Greenblatt was brought in to replace him. He reports directly to CEO John Stanky. And, you know, Stanky's mandate has been clear from the from the start for HBO. Do more. They're expanding to a second night of programming on Mondays later this year. They want more hits. There's another Game of Thrones prequel pilot that is going to shoot in the summer. There's at least three, maybe more, maybe a fourth that has been put on the shelf, which I don't know what that means. But there's a lot of other stuff in the works. The pressure is definitely on HBO to continue and to launch another Game of Thrones series. The big question for me is if John Stanky and his team are going to have that same kind of patience that Plepler did in getting Game of Thrones off the ground. Will he be as patient? Will he, you know, take take time or will he try and rush it? Because, look, this is a very, very valuable show. This is the biggest show on the planet right now. I think it's going to be very interesting to see what happens with those spinoffs and how, I guess, inevitable they have to be and whether they're being approached with a sense of inevitability or whether they're being approached with the same way that HBO would develop a random non Game of Thrones related pilot like like are they actually going to hold this pilot to an entirely in a vacuum is it good does it work will people watch it standard or will they hold it to an oh dear God we need a show of the scope of Game of Thrones back on our air let's do this standard and I feel like generally very very few networks movie studios, et cetera, have been able to have that sort of restraint that, you know, prequels as a rule tend to be awful and uh, prequel TV series as a rule tend to be not very good. It's, it's just not a thing that anyone goes, 
okay, let's hold this to its own standard, they hold it to a brand standard. And I would like to hope that they will hold these, that I would like to hope that because they went to all the purpose of developing these five at the same time, that that means that the one that they chose to go to pilot is clearly and manifestly the best. So, you know, that already, you know, it's the cream of the crop. We're going to have to, we're going to have to see it is as, as we keep saying, this is absolutely a period of transition. This is a spring of transition. And between the departure of Game of Thrones and Veep, those are two crucial shows. But as we also keep saying, it's not like this is the first time that HBO has had to transition away from a massive game changing hit. They've done this before. It just happens that the people who have done it are not there anymore. And therefore... Who knows? Yeah. And at the same time, there is a big roster of stuff that HBO has primed up and ready to go that will probably get a lot of promotion during the final season of Game of Thrones before and after those episodes ends. I mean, that's what HBO's model has always been. That whenever they have a big premiere or a big finale, you're going to see a bunch of trailers. So still waiting in the wings, you've got Damon Lindelof's Watchmen, which is due this year. That's has the potential to be a big genre hit for them. I don't know if it'll if it that carries the same impact that a show like Game of Thrones has, given how how beloved the graphic novel is and how despised Zack Snyder's feature take on it was. There's season two of Big Little Lies, Zendaya drama Euphoria, then later down the pipeline, and these haven't even started casting yet, but you've got original series written by Joss Whedon and J.J. Abrams. I mean, that's a pipeline. And obviously we'll start seeing some of these trailers because Big Little Lies is up first. Presumably that will be the one that will be most relentlessly promoted over the course of these six episodes. And we also know that there are that there's a full trailer that exists for Big Little Lies. And as opposed to Euphoria, where there were there have been a couple seconds of it in various HBO promo materials and Watchmen, a couple seconds in various HBO promo materials. But you never would know from those seconds in the promo materials what it actually was so thus far hbo has not given us a taste of watchmen that actually makes anyone go oh my god it's freaking watchmen on tv and i assume that at some point in the six weeks of the game of thrones run we will get the trailer that makes people do that i wouldn't be surprised if we saw some of those trailers on april 14th for the premiere oh you're thinking you're thinking they might get them out that early i'm curious just i mean that's just, the narrative right sure but the question is just wh how soon is watchmen actually going to be premiering after this is it premiering in september october november i, I, I mean I, I would I, if i were placing bets i would bet on the fall but that that's just me i am very eager to see actual real in context footage from watchmen because if it looks good that would be among my most anticipated shows of the fall if it doesn't, it would be my, one of my most trepidatious shows of the fall. Well, as Game of Thrones returns for its first episode in nearly 20 months, that's a good reason as any to move on to our next topic and talk about one of the downsides of peak TV, how some of television's biggest and best shows are no longer annual events. Number two. This week, Netflix renewed Ricky Gervais' comedy Afterlife for a second season. The renewal, which arrived a month after its debut, included news that the next batch of six episodes of the series created, written, and directed by and starring Gervais would not return until 2020. And of course, I'm not comparing Afterlife to Game of Thrones, Good. but the Netflix comedy does become the latest series to take more than a year off between seasons and joins other shows like Westworld, Atlanta, Stranger Things, Fargo, Better Call Saul, which also won't be back until 2020. Veep, Master of None, Mr. Robot, Rick and Morty, True Detective, Big Little Lies. I mean, the list goes on. 
and look, as much as networks and studios and actors don't love this practice, I think viewers hate it even more. I mean, Dan, as a critic, does that drive you nuts? Well, at that point, who likes it is, is sort of the thing I, I want to ask. I mean, I, I'm not going to say, look, I love Game of Thrones, but but that show stresses me out because that's a coverage plan that you have to put together. <laughs> that's It's a lot of work, and it's a lot of work for, for Josh. No, it is, it is definitely, I think, you know, probably actors are of mixed opinions on it because these long delays let them do, in today's landscape, additional series so they're getting to do more roles so you can have a regular ongoing role in a tv series depending on their contract depending on their contracts but you can still do lots of other things in the interim uh the reason why atlanta only comes back when it comes back is because donald glover wants to do other things and that you know bless him and that's obviously a completely different reason for why westworld doesn't come back or etc you know everyone and we'll talk about that in a couple seconds i mean for me yeah, it's it's hard to remember. I I watched the Game of Thrones finale from last season before the premiere. That was all I could do. God bless those of our colleagues, people in our spheres who have the ability to rewatch the entire season series before premiere. There there are too many shows that are new for me to watch. I mean, 60. Josh did an entire rewatch podcast in the time that since the series was last on. Yeah, that <laughs> between is between now. That is insane, and God bless him. I could not do that. There is too much stuff I need to watch. But I still did need to watch the finale because I had no memory. I had memory. And and that, of course, is why, as I already said, there's a lot of play setting in the, in the premiere. You have to remind people of the circumstances. But it, it can be even more on a show like The OA where the gap between the first sec- and second seasons of that was two years, three years, whatever it was. I realized as soon as I started watching the second season, my second season screeners, I, I remember that the finale involved modern dancing at a school shooting. And ultimately that was the only thing that I remembered about that show. And and when Westworld comes back, I promise you, I will not remember that anything that had happened. I, and I mean, almost literally anything from the second season of that show. I remember a couple random episodes, but in terms of where anything left, zero clue. It is, it is hard on me and I'm a TV critic. I assume it is hard on viewers. The viewers who are fans of these shows probably are the ones more prone to being able to do full rewatches, but for casual fans, it has to be almost impossible. Yeah, and look, the reasoning between the reason for the the time off on a lot of these shows varies. I mean, Veep, for example, was delayed to accommodate Julia's treatment for breast cancer. Game of Thrones, of course, needed winter weather because winter, of course, is finally here, and they wanted time to extend, you know, and to make sure that they can stick the landing for its final season. Master of None was off for 18 months between seasons one and two and still hasn't officially been renewed because Netflix is waiting uh, like it did for season two on creative from creator and star Aziz Ansari and co-creator Alan Yang. Meanwhile, Alan Yang has spent the last you know year plus working on a show for Apple called Little America. He co-created Amazon Comedy Forever starring Fred Armisen and Maya Rudolph. Which also has not been officially renewed. Which also renewed. has not been officially renewed, <laughs> which could be another year if it does come back. I mean, Fargo, too, is based on on creative. And, you know, look, Noah Hawley, who created the show, has a crazy busy schedule and is doing features and a bunch of other stuff. And and so that forces us into the position of all being kind of the, the grumpy person. Like whenever I see 
stuff from Legion, the only thing I think is, geez, no, Holly, I wish you'd give me a new season of Fargo instead. And yet I understand that there are fans of Legion who don't care at all about Fargo who are like, yay, but now why are you ending Legion? And probably people, some people saw the trailer for that Natalie Portman movie that Noah Hawley wrote and directed and said, yay, finally he's getting away from TV to do a feature film. And then there are the people who have actually read all of Noah Hawley's books who are like, why is he taking all the time doing these things on TV and movies? Write another book. So we're very demanding of our creative people and we're demanding culture in general. And so... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And look, we've been honestly spoiled by broadcast. I mean, the traditional broadcast season is from September to May, meaning you're going to get Grey's Anatomy every September. It will say farewell in May, but then it'll be right back the next September with, you know, with Meredith and company. And, you know, many stars and showrunners in this era are juggling multiple projects. Plus, the traditional episode order is getting smaller. Very rarely do shows run 24 episodes anymore. And the big veterans that do are becoming fewer and far between. You've got long running hits like Big Bang Theory, Supernatural, Modern Family, and Criminal Minds, all of which do 20-plus episodes a season, and all of those are ending either this year or next. And, and I think that people maybe don't talk enough about uh, how it's even harder or more frustrating with the streaming shows because, you know, if a cable show comes out and it's 13 episodes and it premieres at roughly the same time each year, it can feel like it's a really long gap between seasons if a show premieres, say, in January every year and only has 13 episodes. But then you figure that's about three months uh, worth of episodes because they're airing weekly. And so you've got about nine months between seasons. And that's a really long time because you just talked about the broadcast model where you have three months between seasons or four months, which was really comfort comforting. It, you know, you, you would take the summer. You'd maybe catch up on repeats. You know, if you haven't seen it before, it's new to you, etc. But it, it was a small window. But with these streaming shows where the pressure is on to watch everything binging immediately even if the things premiere year to year to year in the exact same window, it's a legitimate year between episodes. It's not nine months, and that's even crazier. And then you have something like Stranger Things, which can be years and a bit. And you kind of have to think this actually plays very well into Netflix's business model because there's nothing Netflix would rather have than people binging every show on the day things premiere and then having to be like, oh, well, I'm going to have a catch-up rewatch binge the week before it premieres again. It's like, ooh, we made you watch every show twice. And that's that's a little frustrating. I won't do it, but I'm still not going to remember where Stranger Things was, so I'm definitely going to have to watch at least a couple episodes. It's it's hard. Yeah, it, it's it's hard. I mean, and it's harder for the networks too because the it costs a lot of money when you have a show. I mean, look, Game of Thrones doesn't need marketing. You know, the, the anticipation around that is bigger than anything I've ever seen in my career. And... HBO is still spending money to market it, of course. I mean, it's their crown jewel, right? At the same time, when you have, say, a lesser-known show that doesn't have this, maybe the rating strength or familiarity of a Game of Thrones, it costs these networks a lot more money to go back and market because it's like people have forgotten. And, and in this landscape, they've moved on to 17,000 other different shows or video games or movies or comics or... I'm already overwhelmed by all the other. And it's not just the small stuff either. I wrote I wrote last week about the third season of Santa Clarita Diet, which premiered last week on Netflix to if you if you go and look at reviews, there were probably about a half dozen reviews of it before the season. That's and this barely is a show anything. in season three. It's a show in season three. It's also a show with two major stars at its forefront. Uh, you know, Drew Barrymore is a movie star, and Timothy Oliphant is an A plus level TV star in this era, and yet it's a show that is largely 
undiscussed by the people who don't love it. And it's a really good show. And yet there's just so much that sometimes things get lost. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that feels like a good point to wrap things up for our next topic. And we've been slowly discussing this over the past few podcasts, but let's talk about the scorching hot overall deals market. Number three. Yes. Uh, for those of you who have not gone to THR.com or the magazine, Leslie has a very in-depth article in this week's magazine slash online about the basically arms race of the overall deal signings and how peak TV has impacted it. And before we talk about the sort of logistics and the absolutely ridiculous amount of money that's being thrown around that, frankly, I don't understand at all, uh, I would like to talk about the most important thing from your article, which is the potential that somehow because of all of this pitch could come back. You can't see this, but my <laughs> arms are raised. I'm cheering. I love pitch. I hated the the way it ended and the message that it sent. But yeah, that's that's an option. That's, you know, look, uh, we can we can get into what over the two types of overall deals are. But like, I mean, uh, first, I would like to know, tell me how this could somehow allow pitch to come back. So basically what, what's happening right now is when you've got the, the most prolific talent, showrunners, thinking people who can manage and, and juggle multiple shows, the Greg Berlantes, the, the Shondas, the Ryan Murphys, and then you've got the producers of hit shows like the Dan Fogelman, right? Fogelman created This Is Us. He created it for 20th Century Fox Television, which is where his overall deal is. And this is, I think it was three or four years ago where he left. He was originally based at ABC Studios, which is owned, of course, by Disney was so frustrated by his experience there. He had a basketball comedy with the league's participation and the Golden State Warriors on board that ABC passed on. And that was kind of one of his passion projects. And he was so frustrated with the experience there that he jumped ship and moved his overall deal to 20th Century Fox Television, which was formerly owned by Fox. And now, of course, thanks to the big asset buy that Disney did, brings Fogelman right back to where he started. So now he's back. He's still at 20th, but his overall deal is up. And one of the things that these outlets, these big companies like Disney and Warner Media, are doing is they want to make sure that they can entice creators to to either come there or stay there. I mean, look no further than what happened with Kevin Sushihara. So look, J.J. Abrams, the head of Bad Robot, and we can talk about how Bad Robot's you know co-CEO Katie McGrath, who's married, of course, to J.J. Abrams and was a founding member of Times Up. She told Warner Media CEO John Stanky that Kevin Sujihara's presence was a, a quote values issue when it came to Warner Brothers possibly being able to re-sign Bad Robot. And look, JJ is in the marketplace right now, and I've got a couple of sources that say between how prolific he is on the film side and on and everything he's doing on TV, producing shows like Westworld, among others, he could get up to five hundred million dollars. And you got to create a company that is a place that these people want to work. So in regards to pitch. Fogelman created Pitch, loved the show. It, of course, had backing from Major League Baseball. And Fox canceled it after one season. Everyone was blindsided, including Fogelman, the cast. And Disney now owns Pitch because it is a 20th Century Fox television library. So to keep Fogelman happy, maybe bring back Pitch. That's one of the things that I'm hearing that, that is on the table. Well, but who would bring it back? I understand completely why 20th would think that they wanted to have pitch going but who would need it who would want to put it on air that's that's the mystery to me because you know people may have been blindsided by it being canceled but i did see what the ratings were for that show they were they were cancelable ratings but define air <laughs> let's see 
Disney is one of multiple outlets that is launching a streaming service. And one of the things that we've heard about Disney streaming service is that it will potentially be very family friendly. Of course, it's going to have all the Disney movie library. That's pretty family friendly. Star Wars, Marvel. I don't know. Pitch seems like it could fit right there, but I'm not saying anything. So Oh, you love I'm Pitch though. You you're like it would fit anywhere. You could put it anywhere. I don't well, I mean, I guess Disney does after all own ESPN, so you know, it would seem like if ESPN decided they wanted to go back to the glory days of Playmakers, because that worked well, that partnership. I mean, I don't know that it would work on ESPN, but I wouldn't, I mean, look, and a lot of things have to happen. Namely, Fogelman has to want to re-up and stay at 20th Century Fox TV. You know, in, in the meantime, NBC has yet to formally renew This Is Us. And that's the biggest hit on broadcast at it, you know, right now in terms of dramas. Okay, so you mentioned previously two types of overall deals. Yes, there Tell are two, the two basic types for those who don't know. The first is called a first look, which means a company like, say, Amazon will sign someone like, say, Jordan Peele to a first look deal. That means Amazon has the right of first refusal. So if, if I'm Jordan Peele and I want to come in and say, hey, I've got this show about, you know, the, the Negro Leagues sticking on, you know, let's stay on the baseball topic here. I'm making this up. There is no Negro League show, although there should be. I would be. watch that. I would watch the hell out of that. So if I'm Jordan Peele and I go to Amazon and I say, Jen Salky, I have this show about the Negro Leagues. And Jen's like, that's mm, a good idea, but it's not right for Amazon. If I'm Jordan Peele, I can now go out and shop that and take it to anywhere else and sell the show somewhere else, meaning Amazon has the first look. And if they pass, the creator has the freedom to take it somewhere else. The second kind of overall deal is the exclusive quote unquote overall, which means if um, I'm someone like, let's stick with Dan Fogelman here, that I have an overall deal with, with 20th Century Fox TV, which is now, of course, Disney, which we will keep saying for the foreseeable future until they change the, that studio's name, if they do. If I'm Fogelman and I say, hey, I have this show, I can take it to any, you know, to any Disney network. So I can say, I have this idea, I want to bring pitch back. Where do you want it? Do you want it on Freeform? Do you want it on ABC? Do you want it on the Disney service? Do you want it on FX, which they now own? I have this other idea for a nature thing. We can put this on, on National Geographic. So it gives you, it gives Disney, the studio, the exclusive rights to Fogelman. So if I'm Netflix right now, they enter, they, Netflix really changed the entire overall deal space and basically is responsible for all of these showrunners getting eight and nine figure paydays. So, so the minute that Shonda Rhimes joined Netflix, that means you want to see the, the brand new show from Shonda, it's exclusive to Netflix. Shonda can't sell anywhere else. If she wants to make a movie, she's at Netflix. Unless she gets some massive permission to do something outside of her deal, which would be very rare considering the money that they're paying her, she is exclusive to Netflix. Just like Ryan Murphy is exclusive to Netflix. Just like Kenya Barris is exclusive to Netflix. So those are the two major types. But what's basically happened in the industry that has delivered these paydays is when you see these, these creators, there is an arms race for top talent because you've got everyone wanting to compete with Netflix and Netflix spending billions of dollars on originals to try and continue to grow its original library because they have the awareness that at some point Disney is going to pull all of its content. Universal, which is also launching a streaming service, could possibly pull all of its content. Warner Brothers could pull its content. And that's why you saw Friends get a $100 million deal to stay for one more year because well, maybe it will live exclusively on the Warner Media streaming service. So it's basically created and forced these traditional studios, Warner Brothers, Universal, 20th, ABC Studios, 
and Sony Television to a lesser extent to pay its top creators to make it to incentivize them to stay where they are or to jump to a different studio. So first of all, I'm entirely all in on a bingo long traveling all stars and Motor Kings TV show. So anyone who wants to make that, I, I promise to watch it enthusiastically. But but some of the numbers in your story are bonkers. Uh, you, you mentioned 500 million for J.J. Abrams. And I mean, look at J.J. Abrams's TV record. It's it's not perfect. He absolutely has hits. He absolutely has shows people loved, but he has more than his share of failures. You look at some of these contracts with the hundred million pluses, and, and I guess I can make, you know, I can make sense out of J.J. Abrams as a brand being whatever he's worth. And Greg Berlanti, I, I could probably argue that he's a bargain at that price. I mean, he's got like 17, I think it's 17, I forget how many, but it's, it's that I'm not, exa I'm not over exaggerating here. It's something like 15 or 17 shows currently on the air and i think three more pilots in development right now all of which have good chances of moving forward yeah his, his, he's got the tv record for the most number of scripted originals his company is you know it's a, it's a juggernaut it's a machine i can understand that i can understand obviously ryan murphy because he will and that's vote. A, but let's talk about berlanti for a second sure. that's a lot of revenue for a company like warner brothers of course. And so you need to keep him and then you can't lose him. And I understand. And I, similarly, I understand Ryan Murphy. It's it's a somewhat different thing. You know, his track record is is hit and miss, but he definitely has had big hits. And also, more importantly, probably he'll give you big hits, but he'll also give you competitors in an Emmy space, which is something that Greg Berlanti does not do. Greg Berlanti has never really made any effort to go for Emmys. It's just not the thing that he does really, because he understands that he's working in a, he's working in broadcast at a moment at which broadcast is not playing in the Emmy game. But a lot of the people you listed in, in the sort of next category, in the sort of, in, in the tens of millions of category, I don't understand how anyone makes money off of some of those. Like, like, look, I love Mindy Kaling. Mindy Kaling is, is great. She's an incredible talent, but I just don't, that's a lot of money that she's apparently been a given. <laughs> Yes, but at the same time, look, she's got a couple of TV shows that, that she's working on. She has a movie coming out late night that's got a lot of great buzz around it. I mean, she brings a unique voice to a studio that has lost a couple of people of late. I mean, Warner Brothers is an independent studio, which is, normally is not something that is very appealing to talent because it means that they don't have an, a network counterpart to sell things to in the way that, say, Universal Television has NBC and then has its cable arms. I mean, they're starting to. Warner Brothers is, of course, an affiliate of HBO. They have their streaming platform, Warner Media, in the works. And for Berlanti, he has DC Universe, where he's already got three shows on that on that platform, and probably more by the time we're done recording this podcast. But I mean, those are that's a revenue stream. Each show, each potential movie, is a revenue stream. It's just still silly money. I, you know, end of end of the day, I am I am always pro writers, and they should take the money they can get while they can get it. it it's it, it's just so much money. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, there's three major tiers of what we're seeing right now in the overall deal space. The first is, of course, the upper echelon with the Shondas, the Berlantis, the Ryans, and look, Chuck Lorre, who created Big Bang Theory and a number of other hits, and Dick Wolf, mastermind behind. 17 Chicago shows on NBC and SVU with another Law & Order spinoff in the works and an FBI at CBS. Lori and Wolf, their deals are up next year. I mean, and at the same time, when as we talk about JJ possibly getting $500 million, there aren't a lot of those players who aren't already set up at a studio. And I would be stunned if, if Dick Wolf and Chuck Lorre left their respective homes at Universal and Warner Brothers 
But I mean, they're what they mean to those studios is it's really hard to put words around because like I'm I'm struggling for words here because they mean so insanely much to those companies. And that's, of course, the first tier. The number of other people who could get nine figures in this industry are, are few and far between. So it's created a lot of movement in, uh, on the second tier, which is people like Nanachka Khan, who created Fresh Off the Boat and is starting to who can not only create and run a show, but can also mentor up and coming writers. She's always had a lot of development. She she just moved her overall deal from 20th Century Fox to Universal and the mini Kalings are in that that range. And then you kind of get to the third tier where it, the money really hasn't trickled down yet. These are people like Maria Ferrari, who has spent a decade as a staff writer on Big Bang Theory. She just cashed in. She's getting six million dollars. And it's effectively the same deal that writers off of veteran shows were getting 20 or 30 years ago. So it really hasn't trickled down. And that's not to say it's not a good deal. It's a great <laughs> deal for her. She's making a lot of money because she is being rewarded for her commitment to Big Bang Theory, but she has yet to develop. So the, the studio Warner Brothers is really hoping that she can create another hit for them. Well, we will no doubt continue to talk about this exhaustively going forward. But again, that's a lot of money. Yeah, and it's all happening at the same time that, that you know these agents are securing these big, these massive overall deals for their clients, and they could get fired on Sunday. But that's a topic for future podcasts. That's a topic for next week. So, which brings us, of course, to our fourth topic for this week. Let's go to a question from the mailbag. Number four. We've been talking a lot about HBO lately, and listener Cameron asked about where other premium cable networks like Showtime and Stars and even Epics fall into the conversation and if they'll be able to survive the coming streaming wars. I say coming streaming wars, but we're really already in the thick of it. So I think we're deep, think we're deep, deep in it at this point. Or unfortunately, maybe it's going to be a hundred year war and we really are just at the beginning. My hair just turned gray when you said It's that. okay. I'm not going to survive it. <laughs> But I mean, Dan, when you talk about the other, the rest of the the premium space, the Showtimes, this, the Epics, the Stars, where do you see those networks from a critical point of view? I think it's funny because they they do, and I don't know that anyone at Showtime, Stars, Epics is going to feel great about us saying that sometimes they don't get counted in as much. But I, I do have a but coming, and and the but is that obviously they're doing great work, and sometimes. The, the reality is that maybe they do get a little forgotten in the conversations because so much of the oxygen is just sucked out by HBO and by FX and by Netflix and to some degree by Hulu and Amazon, etc. So so they almost become the little guys, which is ridiculous in certain cases. Showtime is not a little guy by any stretch of the imagination, and their track record suggests that they shouldn't be treated as that. And yet they have something like an escape at Danamora, and people are almost kind of to some degree, surprised by the stars and whatnot that they get involved. And then when they win awards for it, it's like, ooh, they were the underdog. You know, Patricia Arquette was the underdog in the various awards races in which she beat Amy Adams in the winter. And that's that's a funny thing to think about. So probably with Showtime, it, it behooves them to think of themselves as, as underdogs and have that chip on their shoulder. Stars is a different thing. They they don't play the awards game quite as much, and it, it hurts them because something like a counterpart, which on a different network would have been a, an Emmy player. You can't tell me the counterpart doesn't get a J.K. Simmons Emmy nomination if it's on HBO or Netflix. And once and if it gets those nominations, you can't tell me it doesn't get a third season or a fourth season or a fifth. So it gets stuck. And yet stars had my number one show last year in the documentary series America to Me. They've got a 
vast assortment of quirky, weird, auteur little shows that I am so happy get to be on TV, whether it's something like Now Apocalypse or Vita, things like that. I, I look at those shows and I'm like, yeah, you go stars. I used to make fun of you for all your shows about unnecessary screwing and nudity and whatnot. But no, you're, you're doing some cool little things. And, and you know, Outlander isn't a, a little thing, but it's a it's a big thing that fans like. And yet stars isn't in these conversations. Epics maybe hasn't <laughs> warranted the same attention but they do have they have a batman semi spin-off in pennyworth and uh maybe that's the kind of thing that will get the buzz that maybe things like graves and berlin station and even get shorty which has a brand hasn't gotten so unfortunately unfortunately or fortunately there's a lot of room and there's a lot of room for things to potentially break through and so I think that those three entities all have valuable places in the marketplace. And, you know, even if they're underdogs, they really aren't. Yeah. And at the same time, I mean, the question is, you know, will they survive the streaming wars? The answer is yes. I mean, all three of them have major corporate backing. Showtime is owned by parent company CBS. Its top exec, David Nevins, now oversees original for the broadcast network and subscription platform CBS All Access. And look, Showtime this year is at a, at a point of change, too. They're saying goodbye to their signature hit, Homeland. The Affair is also signing off this year. Um, they've got a, this week alone, they handed out a big financial commitment to a Mark Bull, a drama from Mark Bull called Intelligence. They've got the Roger Ailes limited series coming. They're rebooting Penny Dreadful and The L Word, the latter of which I'm very excited about. Meanwhile, rookie comedy Black Monday hasn't really cut through. It just ended season one. It hasn't been renewed yet. And next up, they have their biggest swing yet, which is a live action take on billion dollar video game franchise Halo, which is, of course, on its second director and recently added a showrunner to serve alongside Kyle Killen. The Halo thing continues to perplex me because it, it doesn't feel on any brand at all. It, it feels like just a massive commercial swing. And I don't exactly see how it fits in with what Showtime is doing. But I guess the way it fits in is... They want their Game of Thrones. Yes, is, is if Showtime wants a large hit, they're allowed to try to develop a large hit. It, it does feel like they're... I don't know. It's not for me to know, but they're, they're forcing it. You know, when you have a certain number of people coming and going and coming and going and coming and going... It makes me wonder whether once something actually gets on air, whether it will be a creative imperative to put it there or whether there is going to have been so much development cost sunk into Halo that they have to put something on air. I mean, and Halo has <laughs> been in the works for years. It was originally supposed to be the first scripted original to be released via the Xbox platform. And I mean, look. I mean, hats off to them if they can make it work. And everyone, of course, in this town loves to root for the underdog like Kyle Killen. But I mean, that's a big question mark, and that is a massive financial investment. But they've got lots of they've got lots of things that feel like big ticket programs to various degrees. City on a Hill with Kevin Bacon and Aldous Hodge. Aldous Hodge, who I've been saying is a massive star waiting to happen for years. If Underground wasn't the thing that made him a star, maybe this will be because eventually he's going to become a star. So that's the kind of thing that could cut through as both an awards player and a uh, you know, a big hit. And and one day, one day they're going to have that Daniel Craig show, aren't they? No. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. They've said that it'll be after James Bond, but I, I mean, I don't know what, what that means for Daniel Craig. You know, the Showtime tends to pick up a lot of stuff and it kind of just sits there in purgatory. 
there's been no updates on that and a couple of other things for a few years. I mean, I don't know. Though they have made a good move into the late night space with uh, their Jesus and Miro show. I, if, if people haven't been watching it, it is it is really hilarious. And I've been enjoying it and enjoying the fact that it's only on once a week. I I really couldn't I couldn't do their vice show when it was nightly. There's just too much TV. But once a week, I can absolutely look forward to Jesus and Mero. And so I hope they let that one nurture and grow a little bit because I think it has kind of the makings of a signature program for them in a space that they've been waiting to get into. So that's about it for Showtime on this. On this, What else we got next? So stars. I mean, look, they're in the middle of some growing pains. It was just acquired by former independent studio Lionsgate for $4.4 billion dollars. Longtime CEO Chris Elrecht just departed him at a turf war with Lionsgate CEO John Feltheimer. Look, and they have a decent scripted roster that continues, you know, to to grow with shows, of course, owned by Lionsgate, because in this era, ownership is really everything. So shows owned by Lionsgate on stars include Vita, Sweet Bitter, Now Apocalypse, and Power, the latter of which has spin-offs in the works. Its biggest hit is Outlander, which is a show from that it doesn't own. It's from Sony TV, which means it's got a big licensing deal. It's already renewed. Its future is set on that network. And it's got a lot of uh, upcoming shows on its slate that are, of course, owned by Lionsgate, like The Rook and Hightown. They're doing a lot of interesting things. Is uh, Outlander a bigger hit than Power? I feel like Power is their biggest hit. I could be totally wrong on that. Yeah, but I mean, in terms of word of mouth and and how big it is globally, I I would think Outlander is probably the bigger of the two. I think probably... Premium cable network could be happy to have both of those two shows, even if those shows seem largely incompatible in terms of a brand. That's that's the thing I've always struggled with with Stars is what does Stars's brand actually mean? And if the brand means inclusive and sometimes random and incompatible uh, outsider voices having a home, that that's a brand, and it's a brand that I wholly support. I just don't know if it's a brand that necessarily is a huge moneymaker but um i mean and make no mistake you know outlander was a show that that stars picked up because it's their version of game of thrones and yet in no way on that actual scale in terms of actual tangible audience numbers correct and look let's take a quick look at 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 epics too i mean this is a company that also has some new big backing behind it which is now owned by mgm which of course has a massive studio and library behind it last year it added former tnt president michael wright who took over at the helm, and he's so far been taking some big swings with scripted offerings like Godfather of Harlem, starring Forrest Whitaker. You mentioned Pennyworth, the Batman offshoot about Alfred, and that's, of course, from Gotham showrunner Bruno Heller. Then they've got Our Lady LTD, starring Ben Kingsley. Meanwhile, Wright has also canceled the two high-profile originals that launched Epics into scripted, with Berlin Station getting the axe last week. And its scripted roster includes your one of your favorites, Get Shorty, which, like the Kingsley show, is owned by MGM. That is one of Tim's favorites, not one of mine, because I honestly don't know if I get Epics <laughs> from one week to the next. I do not know if Epics is on my cable package. Um, but no, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're still looking for a big signature program. And I think they obviously have the money and development possibilities to make that happen. I don't know if it's going to be Pennyworth, uh, because I don't know if anyone has been really all that excited or clamoring for a backstory on Alfred, but maybe they have been. But if it brings in a different kind of audience and they're able to promote some of the other stuff that they're doing and get that viewer to come back for, say, Get Shorty, it's a success. It is. I just don't know what, again, I don't know what the Epics brand is. Uh, I don't know what the Stars brand is. I think I know what the 
Showtime brand is, but as I've already said, I don't know what Halo has to do with that. So they're all just trying to find their way, but I think they're all okay. Yeah, and all of, none of them are going anywhere anytime no. soon. Well, thank you, Cameron, for the great question. And if you have other topics that you would like to hear Dan and I take on, please send us an email to TV's top five, TVS, T-O-P, the number five, at THR.com. Number five. As always, we wrap things up with our Critics Corner segment. This week, The CW says farewell to Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, Cinemax debuts Drama Warrior, Killing Eve returns for season two, and FX launches its Michelle Williams and Sam Rockwell limited series Fosse Vernon. Dan, what you got this week? There's a lot of uh, fun stuff to watch this week. I'm going to be spending my weekend mostly catching up on finales that I haven't watched in the past couple weeks watch you're the worst watch you're the worst i'm going to i'm looking forward to the you're the worst finale which i've heard largely great things about but as we may have mentioned earlier in this podcast i was in new york this week and fell behind i also fell behind on uh, broad city which i need to catch up on and i'm very much looking forward to the crazy ex-girlfriend finale that is a show that has been a a good reliable success for the CW, at least in terms of critical attention and in terms of its overall quality. And the final season has been a, a solid season, and I hope it goes out well and on its own terms. You mentioned Killing Eve. The second season starts very well. I had some reservations about the way the first season ended. The premiere of the second season is really great. I think that eventually the show is going to run into plausibility issues on how long this game of cat and mouse can really go. And I hope that they figure out how to handle it in a graceful way, not a contrived way. But so far, they haven't hit a wall there. Friday, which is today as we're recording it, uh, Warrior is premiering on Cinemax. It's a martial arts Western, and I've seen six episodes of it. And at times, it's very good. It has some sluggish bits. It has half the story set among the Irish of Chinatown in San Francisco in the 1870s. And the Irish side isn't really very good. But... There's some decent fight action, and if you stick with the show, the fifth episode is a really special episode of TV. And then, of course, Fosse Verdon is the the big thing coming this week. Uh, Sex Fifth Avenue in, in NYC. Uh, the windows are all done up. Done up fancy for Fosse Verdon. And if you are a fan of the world in which that show is set, it's a lot of fun. It's full of great details, and Sam Rockwell and Michelle Williams are both terrific. I, I think it's a little bit more limited in its appeal, in its themes or whatever, than the the feud season that it feels a lot like. This has no ties to Ryan Murphy, um, and I, I don't know. It's it's quite as wide reaching as some of the Ryan Murphy FX things, but but it is definitely worth watching. And also, as a, as a last plug, uh, if you are in New York City and have the financial wherewithal, the Ferryman is an astoundingly good play. One of one of the best plays I've seen in years. Well worth checking out. Yeah, just tremendous. Well, Dan, this feels like a good point to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. And if you like us, be sure to check out Josh Wiggler's newly launched genre podcast called Series Regular. And of course, Scott Feinberg's Awards Chatter, which on Monday features special guest Mark Hamill. 
Dan and I will be back next week to talk all things packaging fees with special guest Rebecca Sun. And Josh Wiggler will join us for a primer on what to expect from the final season of Game of Thrones. Until then, be sure to subscribe on your various podcast platforms. I love that you make all things packaging fees into a uh, into a lure for next week. Yes, if you like us, you should also uh, rate us and comment on us, again, on your favorite podcast platforms. You can talk to us on Twitter. We're always chatty and happy to hear feedback. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. 